1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Matza, and today we're going to discuss Conflict Mediation in the Arab World, published by Syracuse University Press in 2023, edited by Ibrahim Prayahat and Isaac Svensson. Today, my guests are Isaac himself and one of the authors of this edited volume, Professor Laurie Nater. The Middle East and North Africa region has been plagued with civil war, international intervention and increasing militarizations, making it one of the most war affected areas in the world today. Despite numerous mediation processes and initiatives for conflict resolution, most have failed to transform conflicts from war to peace. Seeking to learn from these past efforts and apply new research, the editors present the first comprehensive approach in mediation in the Arab world, taking on cases from Yemen to Sudan, from Qatar to Palestine, Syria, and beyond. So, this book, Conflict Mediation in the Arab World, focuses on mediation at three different levels of analysis, between countries, between governments and armed actors, inside single countries, and between different internal communities. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Isaac and Laurie, welcome. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, happy to be talking with you today.
1: So to start with, can you tell us something about yourselves and the origins of the book? So
0: uh, I'm a professor at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University. So I'm a peace researcher, been involved in peace research for almost three decades and the origins of the book is basically a meeting that an informal track two meeting that Ibrahim Faya the editor of the book and me, uh, we met in Vienna in 2018 uh, where we identify the need for a book on mediation specializing on the Arab world and we saw that it was a need to bring mediation scholars into conversation with area specialists and those specializing on the conflicts, the many conflicts in the Arab world. And that what we set out to do, and, and now we see the, the final product.
2: Right. I'm Laurie Nathan. I'm a South African. I was involved as a negotiator in South Africa's transition from apartheid to a constitutional democracy. And subsequently, headed a centre for conflict resolution in Cape Town. I ended up as a practitioner, mediating with the African Union and the United Nations, uh, including with the African Union on the Darfur crisis, 2005-2006. I'm currently professor of the practice of mediation at the University of Notre Dame in the U.S. I have a deep passion for mediation as both a scholar and a practitioner and I've written on mediation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as well as in relation to the Syria and Yemen mediations. And it was on the strength of that that Isak invited me to participate in this project.
1: So in the opening pages, you make the argument that much has been written about conflicts in the region, but little attention has been paid to the attempts to resolve them. Can I ask you why? I think this is the case
0: in, in when we talk about armed conflict more generally, that there is a, a tendency to focus on conflicts and the origins of conflict, and there is a bit of a lack of attention to efforts out to resolve conflict or trying to transform conflict. And this is in particular for the Arab world, where we see an attention that has been focused on Looking at the, the, the conflict, studying them, uh, uh, see the risk for escalation, uh, but not really studying but and taking seriously the peacemaking and the conflict yeah. resolution efforts that there have been. And uh, w- we try to address that through this book. And looking at the different conflicts as they occur in, in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, uh, in the Gulf, States, in, in Israel-Palestine, and oh, so, yeah, forth, so, so forth, forth. Uh, well, with a focus oh, on what? cooperative solution and the different, and, and especially then on, on mediation
1: and mediation practices. You speak about mediation. And actually, earlier, we were just, uh, while preparing for the podcast recording, we are talking about the question of mediation and negotiation. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about the difference between these two terms, so can you tell us about mediation, its meanings, and how to research this particular topic? When
2: when parties in conflict, in serious conflict, in armed conflict, believe that they are unable to win, that they are unable to defeat their opponent militarily, and are interested in the possibility of a negotiated settlement, they need the support of a third party very often, And the third party is the mediator. The conflict parties are the negotiating parties. They need a third party mediator because the level of mistrust and hatred and enmity between them is so intense that they are unable to have a viable, constructive dialogue and negotiation on their own. There are some rare exceptions, but almost always conflict parties that have use large-scale violence against each other need the support of the third party and the third party could be a state united states qatar currently in the gaza crisis it could be an organization multilateral european union african union united nations it could be a private sector organization it could be a faith-based organization and some of those third-party mediators are professional mediators they are deeply familiar with the skills and expertise associated with mediation and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are diplomatic actors that are relying on their diplomatic connections without necessarily having expertise in mediation.
0: And it's important to to recognize I think that uh, mediators have different motives for why they intervene and this is something that we discuss throughout the book. And it's important to not come with a naive understanding of mediation because mediators by themselves come with different motivations for engagement that that is partly altruistic. They want to contribute to a change of the situation to bring more peaceful development, but it's also to advance particular interests that they may have, especially when we talk about state uh, mediators that are quite prevalent in this region. We can see that these types of mediators uh, do have a, a particular interest that they try to advance through the mediation process.
1: Yeah, as Laurie mentioned earlier, obviously, thinking about the current situation, Qatar comes really immediately to our in front of our eyes. And certainly, as you mentioned, they too have their own interest, which we cannot unpack here, but there's certainly Uh, very important for any analyst to look at. Now, let's go back to the book. So the book is divided into three parts. And the first part is about trajectories and challenges of mediation in the Arab world. Can you give us just a brief sense of both the trajectories and the challenges? Well, in this part of the book, we try to sort
0: of look at the larger patterns of mediation conflicts and conflict resolution in particular, and look at the different challenges that is facing actors that are involved in the, in the region. And it's focusing on the dynamics, particularly of, of peace agreements. And one of the, the key interesting paradox, so to say, is that uh, the Arab world have a lack of peace agreement. It stands out as uh, underutilization of comprehensive peace agreements. I mean, there have been several peace negotiations and lot of mediation efforts. We have seen peace uh, agreements of various sorts, ceasefire agreements, and israel palestine of course, is uh, quite prevalent in terms of, the, of these types of uh, agreements. But we see a lack of comprehensive settlement, and this is something that is discussed in the chapter by by Peter Wallenstein and, and uh, Stina Herblod, where they make a very interesting comparison between the African region and uh, the, the Arab world, uh, both of which have interesting trajectories in terms of, of foreign involvement, the history of colonialism, a sort of um, a resource curse. Uh, underdevelopment and, and, and authoritarian uh, uh, countries. Uh, so w- 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 they have a lot of similarities, but a difference in terms of their trajectory of, of peacemaking. Uh, then we have uh, Laurie Nathan's great chapter. And, and I think he will mention a few words on, on this, on the, on the important role of mandates of in mediation, which is a key key area of research, of course. Uh, we also have Mohammed Abu Nimar is doing a, a very interesting chapter on on national dialogues and the role of national dialogues that has been used. And national dialogues is something that sometimes entails mediation and sometimes is a process without a sort of a, a, a formal mediator in a, in a normal sense. And he discusses the way in these
1: how these have evolved and the different um, trajectories. And I really want to ask a little bit about the chapters that you mentioned. For instance, uh, you know, chapter one by Peter Wallenstein and Stina Uggblad. They ask a very interesting and very important question. Why have there been relatively few peace agreements in the Middle East in the past fifty years or so, compared, for instance, to uh, Africa? Or I I was even thinking about Latin America, for instance. Is there a reason why? Well, they... They they do
0: discuss various uh, hypotheses that could explain this, Uh, and uh, I think uh, their aspiration is not to give a comprehensive answer, but rather suggest a few potential explanations. Uh, They point to historical legacies uh, in this. A region, especially the legacy of the Ottoman Empire, and the, you know, the, what comes with that in terms of the, a sort of a certain political culture, in terms of elitism and a lack of transparency, and that this could influence the, the type of the trajectory of peacemaking. Uh, they also point to the lack of institutions. I think that is an, a very important point. I mean, in in other world regions, we see international organizations, regional organization, African Union uh, in, in in Africa, in Asia and in Asia, in Europe, of course, European Union and so forth. So we see regional collaboration, institutionalization that have helped to create uh, a basis for me uh, in, in this region, we see a lack of that, and, and that I think is a, a part of the explanation.
2: I just want to add something about, at least, raise a question about the extent to which Arab culture, Arab cultures in the plural, have a different style of addressing conflict, negotiations, and resolution. I experienced that when I was mediating on on the Darfur case which is an African case, but has an African-Arab flavor to it. And there was a formal negotiation that was mediated by the African Union with the Darfur rebels on the one side and government of Sudan on the other. But at the same time, we learned subsequently, at the same time, there was a informal negotiation that was going on, like in a parallel universe, with an entirely different approach to negotiation. Whereas our approach was a Western approach, meaning formal, at the table, suits and ties, legal text, signed agreements. The parallel process was much more informal, much more fluid. And aside from our volume, Alex Deval, who's a fantastic Africanist scholar, wrote a really brilliant paper saying there was a different culture in the african arab world of darfur and sudan an entirely different approach to mediation and negotiation and theirs was the real one ours was simply a facade theirs failed as ours failed but theirs was the real effort and the idea was to reach a power sharing informal agreement among elites that would be fluid and not put in writing and not fixed in time that evolves over time as power shifts so that, it may be that we are looking through the wrong lens when we pose the question, why no formal agreement?
1: Well, one wonders whether you know, Western idea of mediations can effectively be relevant in a different context, whether it's Africa or the Arab world, because we in the West, we may not fully understand the internal dynamics with our own cultures, and we probably pretend to use our own criteria without understanding how dialogue negotiations and even the idea of mediation may work in a different context so i I think you raised a very very important point here and i
2: think it's i would i would underscore the fact that it's hugely important in practice and under-researched in the academic world we are not taking culture seriously enough and by culture i mean both practice how we do dialogue negotiations mediation and At the kind of ontological or cosmological level, how do we in different communities understand the concept of compromise, of reconciliation, of justice, of authority, etc. And the mediation community, whether the AU or the EU or the UN, assume that they are culture free or culture universal. So we don't have to bother about culture. We don't have to adapt to different cultures. And we see culture because we are modern, and secular, and cosmopolitan, we think we don't have culture, and that culture is slightly backward and traditional. Um, Those are deep fallacies that I I think impair the efficacy of mediation practice very often.
1: It's a very interesting uh, uh, story. A few years back, uh, as I was in East Jerusalem, uh, one of the uh, Supreme Court judges in Israel, uh, issuing a decree related to a housing problem, she said that in the end, Arabs, uh, you know, should drop this idea of uh, remembering long-term history. And that was very interesting because you could see the difference of, you know, one culture that valued history, but also, you know, not really looking back long-term where well, obviously for the Arab population, even that long-term history is part of the culture and identity. Uh, again, I, I don't want to hijack here because we are talking about, uh, the book, but I thought it was very interesting uh, what you're mentioning, um, you know, in relation to culture. culture. Thank you. So, I I think that uh,
0: it's important to understand and recognize that mediation is universal. the, 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 The practice of bringing parties together in situations of conflict and tension occur in all conflicts have occurred throughout time and that practice of course is a universal practice but the way it has manifested itself is very very different right uh, and I think in, in the book we try to to highlight that and I just want to point to that that for instance the great chapter on on the Omani and uh, mediation by El-Hambangus is is a very interesting chapter that looks at the particularities of of Omani mediation uh, which uh, as as Lori uh, points out I mean works much more informally uh, uses other types of, of practices that are locally anchored and, and culturally adapted and to some extent uh, it's more successful you can say uh, and that's a very interesting example and I think also the, the 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 chapter that we have on the the, the Shia-Sunni mediation practices in Iraq is an interesting example of this, because this was done uh, not through primarily through formal negotiation processes, but more informal practices.
1: So you can see how this is sort of uh, an, important, uh, an important aspect. Laurie, I want to ask about your chapter. Um, you talk about the mandates that govern international mediation. Can you speak briefly about this concept in relation to mandates specifically issued by the United Nations?
2: The point of departure here is to understand that mediators are not free agents. Mediators are not at liberty to take positions, to promote stances, to encourage solutions as they see fit. There is a principal agent relationship between mediators that are appointed by states or by multilateral organizations, including the UN. So mediators get their marching orders from their bosses. And in the case of the UN, the boss is either the secretary general who appoints a special envoy or special representative, or the boss is the UN Security Council. When the UN Security Council passes a resolution on a particular conflict, everything that the council says in that resolution is binding on the mediator. The Council would like its position to be binding also on the conflict parties, of course, but it's certainly binding on the mediator. And the mandates therefore provide a set of prescriptions that the mediator is obliged to adhere to, and the mandate circumscribes what is possible in terms of an outcome. Now, sometimes the UN Security Council issues resolutions, Yemen being a good example, where the mandate is not conducive to mediation. The critical UN Security Council mandate on Yemen basically declared a winner and a loser. It declared the government of Hadi to be the legitimate government, which should be reestablished, and called on the Houthi to surrender the territory including the capital, which they had seized through force. Now, that position was unquestionably correct from a democratic perspective, but from a mediator's perspective, it was an impossible mandate. On what basis would the Houthi agree to mediation that would lead to their political defeat when they had achieved a military victory on the field? So that was an example of where the mandate foreclosed the possibility of dynamic effective mediation.
1: I want to move to part two of the book, mediation in or by Arab countries. Now, this part has nine chapters. Therefore, I would like to focus mostly on Syria and Palestine for the sake of time and also because I believe, without taking away from all of the countries, but given the current historical context, they are certainly... Uh, very relevant as we speak today uh can we start with a chapter by William Zartman on the United Nations mediation in Syria my question would be what did go wrong
2: I'll, I'll kick off with uh, with an initial response um so William Zartman is most famous in terms of his theoretical developments for the idea of conflict rightness. And he argues, in essence, that conflicts are ripe for resolution through negotiations at some times, but not others. So the question that he raises then is, under what circumstances are conflicts ripe for resolution through negotiations? And the answer in short is, the parties must perceive a mutually hurting stalemate. Now, that's not a single condition, that's more than one condition. In other words, the parties all have been must believe there's a stalemate in the sense that none of them can win militarily. And it must be hurting because it's possible to have a comfortable stalemate. That idea recognizes that there are costs entailed in a negotiated agreement because all negotiated agreements require compromise on important values and interests. So the parties are weighing up the respective costs and benefits of continued fighting versus the costs and benefits of a negotiated settlement. Where a party is strong and believes it's going to win, why would it go to the table, says Zartan, and settle for a draw and make a whole lot of painful compromises? It won't. It will keep fighting and it will seek to crush its enemy. I think that theory explains brilliantly both the cases of Palestine Israel and Syria it explains why we've had no resolution through mediated negotiations because in both cases the asymmetry of power led the stronger militarily stronger party to believe correctly that it could win and for that reason mediation had no traction
0: I think this is a, a great analysis, and I agree fully that, that the lack of bri- ripeness, if we look at Syria as one of the uh, the key explanations for the failure of mediation, why it went wrong. Basically that the the parties the at different times throughout this, this long conflict had different expectations of success and it shifted over time. So in the beginning of the conflict to simplify the the, the opposition was in the belief, partly because of this external support that they received and the signal that they received, that they could gain uh, power, that they could achieve their maximalist goals. Uh, and through the, 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 the shift of, of the tables and through the Russian intervention and through a shift in, in, in the alignment of other external actors we saw a change, of power, change in power dynamics in which the government expected to 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 win and, and, and be able to achieve its aspirations. So at no point in 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 the process really, the parties were stuck in a stalemate, where both sides felt that they, they they could not achieve their aspirations. Uh, moreover, I would also add in 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 months chapter and, and this links back to the, the question of mandate which laurie had already talked about uh, and the Sartmand highlights the, the the problem when you have a situation where um the mandating organization provides a mandate for the, the individual mediators but do not back up that mandate with resources as sufficient support. And this is one of the explanation as well, that we cannot see a result of the, 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 the different special envoys that have been acting in the, the Syrian conflict. They have had a mandate to mediate, but the ones that gave them this mandate in the UN Security Council did not provide the support for the individual me- uh, uh, mediators. Uh, instead, uh, Russia started an own separate process a rival process uh, and, for instance, Staffan and Restora, one of the mediators, had to appeal to the UN Security Council to back up its own process, which they did not.
2: And, and to add further on, on Isaac's last point, the first mediator for Syria, the first UN mediator, Kafi Annan, and the second mediator for Syria, Latva Brahimi, both resigned because they didn't have a sufficiently unified principle. So the mandating authority, as Issac has just said, was itself divided. And without that political leverage, the mediator was not able to put pressure on the conflict parties. I want to add, in addition, the important point from Zartman's theory that mutually hurting stalemate is not objective, meaning It doesn't matter what you and I think objectively. We may look at a crisis and say, this is clearly a mutually hurting stalemate. What matters is how the parties themselves perceive the situation. And there's very interesting research in this book and elsewhere that indicates the extent to which conflict parties are often divided. They are having an internal debate between hardliners and moderates on whether to go to the table or not. And to complicate matters further, we can't discount the relevance of emotion. The bodies are not playing chess. Uh, They're not sitting in a cool, calculated um, environment where they're moving uh, non-living pieces across a chessboard. They are involved in the blood and guts of killing and being killed. And the emotions affect their ability to perceive their opponent as a potential cooperative partner in a negotiation process. So Zartman says, in addition to a mutually hurting stalemate, we need the parties to perceive negotiations as a viable way out of their conflict. And they might not do that, even in a hurting stalemate, because of the level of hatred and enmity.
1: I must say that reading this chapter, I felt that this theory was almost a living theory looking at uh, the current situation in Gaza and in Israel where all of these principles are coming to life essentially. And you can see really the the question of the asymmetry and also the lack of uh, interest in sitting around the table and having a mediator in the middle. Uh, And so that was fascinating to see how this theory actually it's real and can be used in order to assess and analyze the current situation now again now, I, I want to move forward because we have a few more questions and i, I wanted to ask about the chapters by magnus uh, lundgren um w- which is basically is a follow-up of the situation in syria and he looks uh at, you know, the period between 2016 and 2019 the discussion is on the intra-syrian consultation in geneva and then in astana so, despite the attempts syria seems to be mediation resistance that, that was my idea why i think the we,
0: we can tie this also back to one question about the man, mandate and the the problem here that uh minus long discussing in his chapter uh is analyzing the kind of the the maximalist Elements in in the the UN mandates, where it sort of basically um, stipulates a regime change in Damascus, not not uh, sort of verbatim, but that's the basic essence of, of what is is sort of in 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 the UN the backbone of the the, the premise, I would say, of the whole uh, mediation effort. So it's, it's sort of premised on the idea of a regime change in, in Damascus, on the change in, in one other side, which did not align with the, with the situation, maybe in the beginning of the, of the conflict, but very soon as the conflict developed, it, it did not sort of align. So we had a discrepancy between the mandate and the premise of the mediation, the way it was shaped, and the realities on the ground. And this also comes back to the question of rightness, which is this kind of idea around sort of alignment between the the realities on the ground uh, the perceptions of the parties, and the timing of the mediation effort.
2: You know, initially, the, the Syrian rebels did not perceive a hurting stalemate because they thought they were going to win. They, they, they were deluded with hindsight in believing that the Obama administration was going to come to their rescue and pile it on. And that turned out not to be the case. When it became evident to the rebels that they were losing, the emotional considerations were really important. And I raised the anecdote um, to supplement what's in the book by saying that I had an opportunity to meet with rebel leaders who were outside the country in exile um, to plot the way forward. And I put to them what I thought would be controversial, which was that you are losing. You need to go to the table. And they did not dispute that. They didn't dispute that. They accepted that there was no debate. It wasn't controversial. And then I said, you have to do a deal with Assad. You're going to have to share power with with Assad, and he's going to be the dominant partner because he's winning, if not one. And they couldn't even talk about it. They couldn't talk about it. It was emotionally too intense, too painful. After the slaughter and the deployment of chemical weapons, it was emotionally too painful. And they were stuck where they were, even though they accepted objectively that they had lost and would not ever win. They couldn't contemplate the idea of a compromise and a deal which would leave Assad in power. So it was an example of how potent the visceral emotions are in conflict.
1: So I want to move forward and I really want to talk about now the question of uh, Palestine. So Hamas today has become the household name around the world, and the chapter by Karlsendorf and Kovacs looks at the hamas fatah relations from 2007, which was the year of a civil war between the two, to 2019. Can we walk the steps that brought to the split and outbreak of violence between the two? Uh,
0: The focus of this chapter is not so much on the split, I would say, actually, because uh, that has been researched quite a lot and uh, the relationship, but but well, what this chapter tried to to look at, and I think that's really fascinating in the sort of forgotten history, in a sense, is those attempts to bring uh, the two main parties in, in the Palestine, on the Palestine side, together. Right? So the negotiation between Fatah and, and Hamas. And... Um, In their chapter, they identify six different uh, mediated efforts, different agreements that are actually reached between the parties between 2007 and up to 2019. None of the agreements were able to mend sustainably the relationships. And I think this is really important to take into account because this is a background context in order to understand what is happening now the lack of unity between the the, the palestinian factions uh that has also helped to shape uh, an, an increased uh militarization and increased uh um extremism in a sense on, on the Hamas side and parts of the uh, Hamas, uh, parts of the Hamas organization. Uh, so I think this is really important to, to, to bear into mind. Now what they do in their chapter is that they they compare the different efforts. They s- try to understand what, this <clears throat> what was done in terms of the content of these types of agreement. Uh, why did they not actually materialize. And they bring this into a discussion with with the whole question about implementation of peace agreement. We, we have a lot of research on. And they show that, for instance, the way the the, the, the implementation was managed, the sequencing of the different aspect of the, the process or implementation, can help to explain why these processes faltered. And we know this from conflict resolution more broadly. That sequencing in implementation is a, is a key, key aspect. And they bring that into the analysis, which I think is really fascinating.
2: So just two, two other factors that I think are relevant here. The hatred between Fatah and Hamas is a religious secular tension. I worked in Palestine with the Palestinian Authority on security sector reform in 2005 and 2007, at which point the government of national unity between Fatah and Hamas was still in place, and it was shortly thereafter to break. My colleagues who were in the Palestinian Authority were all Fatah. They absolutely despised Hamas. On, They viewed Hamas as religious extremists that held positions antithetical to the liberal, secular, modern orientation of Fatah. So that was a key factor that that led to the split and has inhibited any kind of reconciliation but it's also worth adding that the u.s had an agenda here it was deeply involved in the fighting between fatah and hamas the u.s agenda was to arm and train and equip fatah to crush hamas that was the agenda and it failed and hamas prevailed But the U.S. historically was involved in trying to sow division, defeat Hamas. So I think it's also important to bring into the equation here.
1: Yeah, which is basically my next question, because uh, there have been a series of agreements between Fatah and Hamas. Some brought positive outcomes, but some did not. And obviously the role of the U.S. and also the role of Israel should be taken into account and i wanted to uh, if you know if I can pick your brain about all of this and if you have views about the role of these external factors in mediations between uh, in the role of mediations between fatah and hamas uh,
0: in in these negotiations egypt play a, a particular role saudi arabia also was an important actor in these types of uh, efforts i think uh when it comes to implementation of agreements, though, it, it's it, it, the, the the key point is not really to look at the third parties in terms of how, sort of looking at the, the the role in in, but but rather the lack of implementation on on the conflict actors themselves that failed to live up to the commitments that that they they did, and I think it goes back to what Laurie said about the the deep deep division that is between these two organizations that stand for two very different visions of Anastasia and P.
2: You know, it's, it's worth emphasizing in a more general way, a point, two points that Isaac has just made now at a general level. The one general point is we need to remember at all times that our obsession with mediation skews our perspective. The dominant actors are never the mediators. The dominant actors are always the conflict parties. What's going on between and within them is way more important than anything the mediator is doing. And the second general point is that the parties do not reach agreement genuinely and abide by the agreement genuinely. If they are not sincere about it, they often sign or agree to what we could call spurious agreements, partly because they're under pressure from third parties, including mediators, and partly because they don't want to be perceived to be the spoiler, the bad guy on the block. So they appear to agree, whereas in fact they've not agreed at all. And that's why those agreements unravel. They were never genuine agreements in the first place.
1: I want to ask briefly about... uh the last chapter of part two, before the concluding questions, uh, because I think it's very important in the current historical context. So Ghassan Khatib looks at American mediation in the Israel-Palestine conflict, and the U.S. have been the third party at least since the 1990s, relying mostly on their leverage as a superpower. Can you give us a sense of the analysis of the American mediation? This
0: goes back to the question of biased mediation, which I think is a really important uh, discussion in, in mediation. Uh, and we need a nuanced understanding about biased mediation because sometimes mediators that have ties to the parties can play an important role. I come from a, a part of the world was the Scandinavian countries that sort of try to have tried in, in different ways to act as as mediators in different conflicts uh, and have a tradition of being unbiased and and seeking to be unbiased and and neutral in the conflict that they they work in. And they have a particular role to to play as well. But when it comes to forging agreements and deep compromises, then we often need mediators that can deliver their side and push parties to come to an agreement. Uh, the U.S. have a particular role to play and has had that historically because of their special relationship with one side, with Israel. And it's important to recognize that the Palestinian side have sought uh, American involvement as well, that they have seen that the only one that can guarantee uh, you israel to to become at the table to make those concessions that are necessary and to live up to those uh concessions would be the the, the u.s uh khatib's uh, chapter problematizes and shows the problems that uh, that is involved in american mediation efforts and there are several uh, and there's a lot that could be said about this it's it's a very complicated material and the uh but it's important to recognize that there is a role for those that have ties to the ports
2: I, I agree with the theoretical perspective offered by Isaac. But one of the problems here is that the U.S. has simply not applied the leverage it has against Israel. The Palestinian authorities is a captive party in a way, where the U.S., could apply leverage on Israel by making its military, financial and political support conditional on not a final outcome, but on a serious effort by the Israeli government to negotiate a final outcome. And it hasn't applied that leverage. So is that correct? Factually, Fatah, Palestinian Authority, have had the hope that the US is the mediator would apply that leverage. Hamas, I must say, has never wanted the U.S. to be the mediator. But this has been the need and desire of Fatah. The U.S. hasn't delivered. The U.S. Clinton at Camp David, for example, presented proposals to Arafat, which he, Clinton, had checked with Ehud Barak, the Israeli prime minister, beforehand, but hadn't checked with Arafat. In a way, the the one-sidedness, was so strong at Camp David that Arafat and his team felt besieged by a mediator too closely aligned with the enemy of the PLO. So if you're the biased mediator, you have to play this with more finesse, I think, with more political astuteness than the US has to
1: date. What you said is very interesting because obviously the narratives of those uh, meetings you know, came out very differently and uh, often the blame is being put on Arafat, but obviously the documents tell us a different story. So I have a couple of more questions and I want to look at the last part. Part three is called local level mediations in the Arab world. And the authors look at Algeria, Iraq and Somalia. Could you give us a sense of what local level mediation is and how does it work?
0: That comes back to the question, that the discussion we had earlier as well about the sort of culturally anchored sort of um, locally contextualized mediation. Uh, and I think one of the findings that that come across when we look at the, the book and the evidence that we present is that the externally driven mediation efforts uh, have been problematic, uh, problematic in outcomes and where we see some success and movements is more on the local level. So this is an interesting, uh, interesting development. And I think that's uh, something, an interesting finding that uh, here is where we can find some, some improvements in the more informal and a more local level mediation efforts uh, that doesn't exclude external involvement. Uh, we can see different combinations with externals and, and local levels moment. And that I think is also a promising avenue for the future. I need to leave the conversation now. But I I, uh, hope that you all get the chance to to read this book. Uh, I think it's a a great, uh, I'm a bit biased, but it's a great contribution to the field, I think. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Isaac. So I'm gonna keep the last questions for Laurie. So mediation seems to be a failing method in the Arab world. Can you draw some conclusions and perhaps speculate what is needed to change this trend? Mm. Look,
2: mediation is, as um, Isaac said earlier, it's universal. It's not a Western thing. I mean, you can look at the Old Testament and other ancient texts, and you will see there's a third-party mediator. So we kind of imagine that this is a new Western liberal United Nations thing. It's not in your own family, in your own neighborhood, in your own city. Whoever you are listening to this podcast, there are mediators, third parties that help parties in conflict resolve their, their differences. My sense is that there needs to be more emphasis placed on Arab mediators as opposed to non Arab mediators. Because I think cultural affinity between party leaders and mediators is very important. And without mentioning names, I think the UN Secretary General often appoints uh, as his special envoys or special representatives to the Middle East um, senior figures who are not culturally recognized in the region. They don't speak Arabic. They don't understand Arabic culture and and customs. I think that's a mistake. I think it matters who the mediator is and how he or she resonates linguistically with the parties. When When the African Union did the mediation in Darfur, the rebels spoke Arabic. Most of the mediators didn't. And so we had to have a mediation through simultaneous translation which is outrageously inappropriate, obviously, but we're not attentive enough to culture. I'm not suggesting that that's gonna be the major breakthrough for mediation in, in the Arab world, but I think it's one of the factors that ought to be taken more seriously, the cultural identity of the mediator.
1: So these were Isaac Svensson, who already led the conversation, and Laurie Nathan. Laurie, thank you so much.
2: Roberta, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for doing this.